happened once again. Shots rang out on the town. Seems to have no end, sings Greg Robbins. We here at Solutions of Violence and our guest today, Ryan Bussey, are also concerned about the repetitiveness of gun violence here in America. Here in Louisville, Kentucky, we have already experienced 10 deaths as a result of gun violence, and we are just barely through the first half of January, the first month of 2023. For Solutions of Violence, I'm Jim Johnson. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMP LP 106.5 FM, and you're listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. I'm Jamie McMillan, here with Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests, not the station. If you would like to share your views, you may contact us by sending us an email to solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. Ryan Bussey, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today, guys. Appreciate it. So Ryan Bussey is a former firearms executive who pulls back the curtain on America's multi-billion dollar gun industry exposing how it fostered extremism and racism, radicalizing the nation and bringing cultural division to a boiling point. As an avid hunter, outdoorsman, and conservationist, all things that the farm industry was built on. Ryan Bussey chased a childhood dream and built a successful career selling millions of firearms for one of America's most popular gun companies. But blinded by the promise of massive profits, the gun industry abandoned its self-imposed decency in favor of a hardline conservatism and McCarthy-esque internal policy showing irresponsible division in our politics and society. That drove Bussey to do something few other gun executives have done. He's ending his 30-year career in the industry to show us how and why we got here. Published in 2013, Gunfight, the Battle Over the Gun Right to Bear Arms in America, is an insider's call-out of a wild, secretive, and critical important industry. Ryan Bussey, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate opportunity to talk about this important topic with you guys. We're glad to have you, Ryan. Thank you for joining us. Uh, what in uh, your life created your love of guns? And tell us tell us about how you came to be a part of this gun culture. Well, uh, like a lot of kids who grew up in largely rural parts of the country, but not always rural, many of the best parts of my childhood involved guns. I worked on a, I grew up on a ranch and my family worked very hard. We didn't have a lot of times for fun. And when we did, uh, it often involved guns, hunting with my dad and my grandfather, my brother, um, target shooting with my friends. And so through my life, many of the best parts of my culture came to be represented by guns and the times that we had with them. And so I don't think that's a lot different than since so many people across the country who, who believe that a good part of their culture is represented by the guns that they used. And, and that, that, you know, that was certainly the story with my youth. So how was it that you became a gun industry executive? After I graduated from college, trying to, you know, figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life, I got uh, an entry-level job in the outdoor industry. And, and for me, and, you know, in the firearms industry, and for me, it was kind of like a kid who had played baseball, getting to play in the major leagues. I got to do something that was fun, right? That was associated with the good parts of my life, of my, of my youth. And just so happened that it was a very small fledgling company. And because of that, I got what I joke as an entry-level executive job, right? I was vice president of sales when the company was very small and I was a pretty young guy. I, I, I became a vice president not long after I was 25 years old. And it was because it was a small company, but we grew it into a very large 
you know, a very large firearms company and a successful one. So I guess I, there was probably some hard work and, but there was a fair amount of luck and um, just circumstance uh, the way I got in. Well, Ryan, uh, your views on gun sales changed. Uh, gun violence and gun safety policy have changed. Tell us about that transition. So I guess I would take issue a little bit with the assertion in the question. I don't know. I think I'm like a lot of people in the country. I'm not so sure that my views and my approach and my desires have changed all that much. I think that the nation and the firearms industry have certainly changed around me. And as that has happened, um, yes, I've become a critic of the industry that I used to be a part of. But the industry itself once insisted on the same sort of responsibility that I was raised with and so many Americans were raised with. It was a voluntary prohibition against many of the most egregiously irresponsible things we see today. Those things that one time were not allowed by the industry, and again, that was voluntary, that changed. And my reaction to that, to that, to those alterations obviously has changed my outlook. We're going to talk about your book in just a, a moment, but one of the reviews of your book describes the gun industry as addicted to fear and conspiracy and intolerance and secrecy. How, how does that review of your book fit your description of the gun industry? Well, sadly, I think that those reviews are pretty accurate now. That's not the industry I got into in 1995. It transitioned to that in the mid-2000s, but in the same way that our politics transitioned to the same sort of politics on the right, certainly transition to sort of addiction to fear, hatred, racism, conspiracy theory, those sorts of things. I saw that same sort of transition in the firearms industry, again, starting in the mid 2000s, uh, early 2000s. And sadly, I think now that a large portion of firearm sales and firearms industry marketing is now addicted to and really just overtly utilizing those very dangerous components. So Brian, you stated quote, in spite of how crazy you think the gun industry is, it's even crazier. Why would you say that? And how crazy is it? First off, and I, and I think that that quote was from a portion of my book where I was describing some of the colorful characters that I worked with and that are in the industry. And what makes it somewhat crazy is that it has up until this point certainly been largely populated by just really overt enthusiasts, like people who you know, they're not button-down professionals. There, some are, but in large part, the one commonality through the firearms industry through my time in it was that people who were there just did it to look, because they love guns. And that tended, and, and I, you know, I, I explained some of the, my crazy kind of experiences through a couple of chapters in my book, but I, everybody in the industry that I knew had similar stories. You know, we had what, well, it were workplace shootings, right? We had dangerous interactions with guns. And I guess my point there is, is that people think that the industry is some heavily regulated, overly buttoned down, very kind of tried and true traditional sort of industry. And my experience was that that was not the case at all. And um, the same sort of societal pressures and personal issues and you know, marital problems and all the same sorts of things that uh, provide angst to every person in America, they pervade the firearms industry in the same way, right? We're, we were we were certainly not immune from the worst pressures and then the, the, um, the responses to those pressures. Right, in an uh, interview with Bill Radke, a sponsor of the program Alliance for Gun Responsibility, he stated that the gun industry is an outside, is a quote, outside, influence on the American culture. What does that mean? What does outside influence mean? And, and why do you think it's outside and 
how is it so influential in American culture? Well, the firearms industry, I think, has played this huge role. And while it's not, you know, it's not a political party, it has been inside the the political mechanism of the United States. And I don't think there's anything there. I don't think there's a single industry or a single entity that has had so much influence over the way our politics is now constructed. Um, and if you think about the, the sort of hell no, all or nothing politics first derived by the NRA now pervades literally every single thing you care about. I don't, I don't care what it is, climate policy and reproductive rights. And, and like I say, even local school boards are, are now controlled by this sort of all or nothingism that the NRA perfected. And you know that, that didn't originate at a political party, but it's now wound into one of our political parties. I think it's it's now that NRA-ism is now the, at the very beating heart. It's now inside the DNA of the political right of the of the Republican Party, um, and I don't think any other industry can claim that sort of influence. From your own experience, you claim that there has been quote a transition from your experience to a radicalization of the gun industry. Tell us about the radicalization of the gun industry. Yeah, when I when I first got into the industry, and for the first maybe I don't know several years, maybe as many as eight or nine years, there were conservative people in the industry, as there are in every industry, but the entire, but the entire existence, the entire reason, the entire, you know, motivation for everything done in the industry was not conservative politics. That has now shifted to conservative politics and radicalization of politics is one in the same with everything the firearms industry does. And if, if you doubt that, I guess I would I would say, think back to January 6th, where there were two types of flags. There were Trump and political flags, and the other type of flag was the AR-15 come and take it flag. Though Those were pretty ubiquitous in that January 6th crowd. And I think that's an illustration of how, of how the, the radicalized politics of the NRA and the business drivers, which have been glommed onto by the industry, are, are now just woven through the DNA strands of the political right. Like those could have been flags of barbecue grills or pickup trucks or anything, but they weren't. They were they were bar- they were flags of of come and take it AR-15s. And so, to me, that's just an illustration of how of how this is now woven through the political right. So you claim that the NRA is the most powerful, dangerous, and offensive organization in the United States. Why is the NRA so powerful, and why is it so dangerous? I think the NRA the NRA's particular influence may be waning as an organization, but NRA-ism is not. And I think that's very much like Trump and Trumpism, right? Trump may not have won the White House in 2020, but Trumpism seems alive and well, sadly. And I think that's the same thing with NRA and NRA-ism. The NRA is wounded for sure, but it hasn't gone away. And the sort of all or nothing NRA-ism, I liken it to a, a brush fire that has been, you know, lit in a dry windy corner of the country and it's now racing across the country. And so I do think that's very dangerous. This this idea, um, if you just take one particular idea that NRAism has spawned, which is referred to as Second Amendment absolutism, i.e. Uh, Second Amendment rights literally can cannot be infringed on, right? This shall not be infringed portion of the Second Amendment. And so this hell no, it cannot be infringed. In other words, a right can exist in absolute terms in other words, that right usurps all other rights, even the rights of kids in Uvalde or, or parade goers in Highland Park, Illinois. I think that's exceedingly dangerous. And I can't I can't think of anything really that is any more dangerous than that if, if there are radicals willing to burn down the country strictly because um, they refuse to be responsible. I think that's pretty, pretty damn dangerous. 
implicit is a term you use to describe the representation of the NRA. How is it twisted? Well, the, the reason I, um, and I do use that term um, quite often, is because they're the sort of cultural connections that I describe in my youth, the NRA and, and political leaders in and around the NRA understood full well that if they took those, those desires and those yearnings to, to protect that culture and twisted it into angry politics, that it can then be turned into something very dangerous. And I think that attraction to cultural touchstones and then and twisting them into, into very nefarious political messaging operations is kind of at the heart of, of uh, how we got here over the last seven or eight, nine years. And I think a lot of people like me, what I would call responsible gun owners across the country, are very, very upset with the degree to which something that we care about and, and wish to be responsible about and have and you know and still enjoy with our families has been twisted into this political movement. Yeah, yeah. An article published by National Public Radio, it's May 24, 22, composed by Nurith Azaman, titled Gun Violent Deaths, How the U.S. Compares with the Rest of the World. He states that the U.S., this is a quote, the U.S. has the 32, 32nd highest rate of death from gun violence in the world, 3.96 deaths per 100,000 people in 2019. That was more than eight times as high as the rate in Canada, which is 0.47 deaths per 100,000, and nearly 100 times higher than the United Kingdom. The, the new release of provisional data from the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, suggests that nearly 49,000 people were killed by guns in 2021. This figure shatters the previous record set just last year by more than 3,500 deaths. That data, plus attacks on elementary schools like the one in Uvalde, Texas, and the supermarket in uh, Brooklyn, New York, just to name a few, leaves a, a, a thoughtful person wondering why the federal government cannot pass gun safety regulations that at least outlaw the sale of military-style rifles and guns with high-capacity magazines. What do you think? Well, I think I think the answer to to that or any, frankly, almost any gun legislation, because even the gun legislation that was recently passed by the U.S. Senate and House, it sort of dances around the edge of what many people think is needed. And the answer to to your question is that the reason it it seems so so much more difficult than it should is again because the gun issue and gun radicalization and sort of NRAism and hell noism and all this sort of stuff that we've talked about is woven through the, the fabric of an entire political party. And so when people go to attack particular policy areas, they're not just attacking something that seems very common. Background checks, for instance, polls at like 82 to 85 percent. Um, nothing polls at 82 to 85 percent, and yet it can't get passed. And the reason it can't get passed is because the right side of the political aisle isn't concerned about the 82 or 85 percent. They're concerned with the very foundational structure of their party, which is which is this culture war hell noism. And so they can't give an inch on something even at, even that polls that high, because that would start to kind of unravel the whole fabric of, of the way their party and their system is established. Um, that's why it, it's so much harder 
than it seems like it should be because we're tackling a subject so much larger than it appears that it is. Yeah, I think you've answered this question already, but how did the radicalization of the gun industry occur and who would you say is responsible for that radicalization? Well, there was a conflagration of factors that happened. Um, I believe it started after Columbine in 1999. The NRA had closed door meetings, which we now know about, where they debated whether to be a part of the solutions that were being discussed or ultimately to become a part of the problem and use tragedies across the country to gin up, you know, to gin up the base about possible legislative responses. There was that. So the NRA was ginning up political fervor and political radicalization just so happened that the same tools that the NRA used to do that, which ended up being hatred and fear and conspiracy and all that sort of stuff, those were the exact same things that drove gun sales. And as those things happened, the industry sort of latched on to the same politics the NRA was using because there was this mutually beneficial relationship. As the NRA drove politics, it also drove gun sales. These things kind of wound together in the mid 2000s. The assault weapons ban wasn't renewed. Then George W. Bush signed PLACA, which is a Protection and Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. That's a broad liability shield. And then the last piece is really important. We had 20 years of war where the heroes of war carrying AR-15s were on the evening news every night. These things were advertised and glorified. And I think when that all came together in the mid-2000s and then Barack Obama led in the polls in 2007, that's when it all kind of spun into one big machine. And, and I think the result is, is what we live with today. An article composed by Catherine Schaefer, I'm going to read a quote from her, Key Facts from Americans and Guns, an article published by the Pew Research Center, September of 2021. That article documents the fact that four in 10 U.S. adults who say they live in a household with a gun, including 30% who say they personally own one. What drives gun sales, would you say? And why is that? Well, there's lots of factors that drive gun sales, some of them completely justifiable and defensible. Many of the newest gun sales, and, I, and I've read the, that data from Pew many times, I think m many of the new gun sales have been driven largely by societal angst and fear. If you think about 2020, the highest gun sales a year, yearly total of any in our nation's history, almost 23 million new guns were sold in that year. Many of those guns, and, and, and that was also the, probably the most tumultuous year most of us can remember. We had George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and COVID and lockdowns and, I mean, Black Lives Matter and Antifa. And I mean, I could just go on and on. It was just you know, incredible. But it, it produced a lot of fear in our society. Some of it irrational, some of it, some of it justifiable, I suppose. But the point is, when you have a, a very fearful society, they will buy a lot of guns. If you think of any of us in any particular circumstance, if we perceive enough frightening, threatening sort of circumstances, any of us will go out and do what it takes to defend ourselves or our families. So I think that's what happened largely in, in 2020. Let me follow up with the question. Attorney Josh Koskoff of uh, Koskoff, Koskoff and Biden attorney, uh, they litigated the Sandy Cook massacre lawsuit and, and one noted by forward radio program, Ralph Bader Radio Hour. He noted that uh, the uh, gun industry seems to be, to the American people, more than what it really is. It's actually quite small, but of course, some most effectively in, in managing congressional action on uh, gun regulation. Koskoff mentioned that what was known as the Tommy gun, a uh, military weapon that was 
banned in the 1940s, it was compared to the AR-15 and, and uh, not even as effective as the AR-15. Costa also mentioned the AR-15 uh, was banned in 1994 in the, under the Clinton administration and, and supported by President Reagan. The ban was uh, lifted in, in uh, well, it had a 10-year limit, and it was lifted in 2004 under the George Bush administration. What are your thoughts about that history of con congressional action on the, the uh, AR-15 and, and similar weapons? Well, first off, it's true that the 1934 National Firearms Act, and Josh is a friend, by the way. I, I like him, and he's a smart lawyer. The 1934 National Firearms Act did, did heavily regulate fully auto firearms. If Josh said some of those things, he's in error a bit because it did not outlaw the Tommy gun and it did not outlaw fully automatic guns. What it did was heavily regulate them. And I think it's most important to note that since the National Firearms Act all those years ago, 1934, not a single mass shooting has happened with fully auto guns, even though they're still legal. In fact, probably anybody listening to this can go out and buy one legally. You just have to um, get a federal tax stamp do what I kind of call a magnum background check. It's a longer and more extensive background check, and you can own one. Um, I have a friend that owns one, um, and yet no mass shootings have happened. They're just more heavily regulated. Then if you move forward to the 1994 assault weapons ban, it's not actually true that AR-15s were banned during that. AR-15s with an additional list of features, two or more additional features, could have been folding stocks or flash suppressors or all these all these new features that are on guns now. It, once it became an assault weapon, it was banned, but the plain, simple AR-15, very similar to the guns that you see today, that was not banned. And an important point to glean from that is that even though the industry could have made millions and sold millions of AR-15s during the assault weapons ban because the plain AR-15 was legal, the industry did not do it. Not because they were illegal, but because there was a social prohibition on it. There was a stigma placed on it. And I think what the ban did more than anything was codify the social norm, the social stigma that prohibited um, reasonable, responsible people from thinking it was a good idea to proliferate those things in society. And so I think we are now faced with an option as a society. We must either find, well, we, we kind of have three options. One I'd like to not consider, but we can either find a reestablishment of those norms that we've once imposed on ourselves um, voluntarily, or we can find regulations that do it for us because the third option is not proving a desirable one. And so I think that's what we have to do. We got to either find those old norms, we got to find regulation one way or the other. Well, thank you for correcting me on that. I apologize to Josh if I misquoted him, but thank you for that. Well, it's a common misperception, right? People across the country, when they hear assault weapons ban, and, and you're right, it was instituted 1990, September 13th of 1994 and expired September 13th of 2004 when George Bush didn't renew it. But people hear assault weapons ban and they think, oh, all these things that I see now were banned. Well, the base, if I showed you a pre-ban AR-15 and a post-ban AR-15, so one that was legal during the 1994 assault weapons ban and one that's legal now, from 50 feet away, you couldn't tell the difference. When you get up close to it and you see all the additional features on it now, the ones now would be deemed assault weapons. The point is that a lot of people just don't understand how important those social stigmas and norms were then. And I think if you think of our politics, it's the same thing, right? So much of what has happened in the last few years is, is not a breaking of laws. It's a breaking of norms. It's not illegal for, for Paul Gosar, a member of Congress, to tweet out cartoonish memes of him killing Alexandria Octasio cortez right? It's not illegal, but that's a norm we used to not cross. 
same thing happened in the gun industry. Norms were broken, and those were at least as important, if not more important, than the, than the regulations that changed. So, Ryan, you're saying here that mass shootings are not the results of gun owners who own assault rifles. Did I hear you correctly? No, uh, many many mass shootings to assault rifles are used in them. My point is that during the assault weapons ban of 1994 to 2004, AR-15s, which many people think are assault rifles, and, and assault rifles is this kind of fluid definition, but AR-15s were perfectly legal. Okay. So there's an article composed by Rini Molle and published by Vox, June 1st, 2022, titled, quote, Polling is clear. Americans want gun control, end quote. Quotes of Political Morning consulted poll last week found that 59% of registered voters think it's very important, 41% somewhat important, for lawmakers to pass stricter gun laws, end quote. However, some argue that gun regulations diminish the right of gun owners to purchase guns. They argue that people who love guns are responsible gun owners. What's your response to the responsible gun owner argument? I don't think that, I personally don't think that most, I'm, I'm sure you could enumerate some gun regulations, which I think are, are overboard. I'm sure some of them are, but I do not believe that responsible regulation has anything to do with infringement. Um, I don't think it decreases the rights of Americans. And the the analogy or the example that I use to sort of illustrate this is that probably all of us on this podcast, on this show, believe that believe in the right or the privilege to be able to drive our vehicles around. We certainly believe in the in the right to to make a living and you know the right to life, liberty, and happiness, right? Some of the most important rights out there. And driving is an important part of that. Driving a vehicle is an important part of that. Yet we don't believe in it so much that we think it's okay to drive through a school zone at 90 miles an hour. We don't believe it's okay that we shouldn't have any safety gear on our cars, no seat belts, no bumpers, no airbags, no, none of that stuff. We don't, and I could go on and on and on here. And yet, and when somebody says, if you could imagine somebody saying, well, I, I don't think we should have any school zones, uh, speed zones, because that would limit my right to drive. We would look at them and think they were absolutely insane because obeying responsible regulations doesn't have anything to do with whether you have the right to do it or not. It, it simply means that you do the responsible thing because you care about the rights of others. We care about live kids in those school zones more than we, we hope for dead ones, right? So we adhere to regulations. Same exact thing for me applies to firearms. Reasonable firearms regulations do not interfere with the rights of people to own firearms. They strictly mean that responsible people, responsible gun owners, care about the, the rights of other people as much as they care about their own. Okay, so after a decade of inaction, and you pointed this out, the Bipartisan Safety Community Act just recently passed Congress and was signed into law by President Joe Biden. Tell us about the new law. Is the Bipartisan Safety Community Act a strong enough law to significantly stem the tide of gun violence in this country, or should the federal government pass still stricter gun safety legislation? What would you say? So I think the, the new legislation is good. I think it will make a difference. I think it makes things marginally better. I think it misses the mark on some very obvious things, including, you know, it's just, it's not defensible that we should allow 18-year-old kids to buy AR-15s. That was stripped out of the bill because the Republican Party would not allow it to be placed in the bill. So there's still some things that need to be done, right? But we didn't get into the problem that we're in overnight with one fell swoop of one, one pin, one law, one issue. We got into it with 30 years of decisions making things marginally worse. We're probably not going to get out of it in one law 
one stroke of the pen either. So I think it makes things marginally better. It's a good start. Now, given the January 6th invasion of the U.S. Capitol and Congress, attacks on FBI offices, plans to violently kidnap a governor in Wisconsin specifically, to uh, hang the vice president of the United States and threats against other government officials just responsible for doing their jobs. How do you move away from the possibility of Americans being on a hair's trigger about these disagreements you, you mentioned? Well, <laughs> I don't know how we do it, but we better figure out a way to do it. I'm, I'm worried about the degree to which a certain faction of our society seems to wish for more of that, almost hope for violent civil war, seem to be arming themselves um, with the hope and the aim of using guns on fellow citizens and government officials. And um, whatever needs to be done to turn that temperature down, we better get to it because I'm worried that these things are going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I, I see far too much chatter in and amongst the gun groups and in the firearms marketing that seems to reinforce this, and it's ex exceedingly irresponsible. Now, a local Courier-Journal here in Louisville had an article published in, in August of 2022 titled Louisville Violence, City May Create Gun Buyback Program. It explains that the Louisville Metro Board of Aldermen is considering passing a law that that would allow the local metro government to establish a gun buyback program. What's your experience with the gun buyback programs and, and are they effective or will they provide a, uh, cash so that gun advocates can purchase new weapons? I, um, I don't think they're very effective. I think they're, um, I, I think they're a feel good thing for people who want to feel good about doing the right thing. But the problem is, you know, if you, you guys look around the streets of any city you happen to be in, Louisville or any other, and you see all of these cars and vehicles, trucks, cars, whatever. And you should note that we have about 287 million registered vehicles in the United States, as many as you, and it, so you look out and you see the crowded streets and you think, wow, that's a lot of cars. Well, we have about 410 million guns in the United States. So all of those cars that you see in every town, every city, every little rural area, every metropolitan area, adds up to 287 million, and yet we have about 130 million more guns than that. So buying back a few dozen guns in a metropolitan area is just not super effective given the math of the number of guns we have in society and the number, we're, and we're adding between one and a half and two and a half million every month, every month. And so it's, it's gonna be, gun buyback programs are gonna be pretty difficult um, given, given the, um, kind of tsunami of, of that of those numbers. I think it's a cultural problem. I think we're going to have to figure out a way to fix the culture in and around gun ownership. And I don't, you know, I certainly don't chastise anybody well-meaning who thinks buying back a gun from people who shouldn't have it is a bad idea. I, I don't, I don't mean to say that. I just don't think it's, I just don't think it can be effective. Not, not in the current circumstance. So uh, Ryan, what about uh, red flag laws? having the police take away guns from people who have uh, emotional problems, emotional issues, uh, their relatives claim that th these people are, gun ownership with them is not safe. Uh, they go before a judge, they're allowed to make their case and judge decides whether or not that person is stable enough to continue using or owning the weapon or possibly the person is not stable enough, those weapons uh, should be removed. So the, the bipartisan 
um, legislation to which you refer has some good red flag components in it. Red flag laws are important. A lot of people may not know this, but somebody who's increasingly, <laughs> increasingly garners disdain from the left, uh, the governor of Florida uh, is governor of a state who has a very strong red flag laws and red flag laws have been used to disarm several hundred people in Florida over the last couple of years. I don't maybe up into the thousands now, and who knows how many crimes or mass shootings that has stopped. Difficult to measure that, but there's a conservative state that is utilizing red flag laws relatively effectively, and they've stopped, I think, a lot of crime. I think we need to institute stronger red flag laws, and we need to fund them even better. Red flag laws without um, funding and enforcement really don't do anything. So if we're going to have, this is just one of the components of being a responsible nation. If we're going to have 410 million guns in the United States in a in a country of about 370 million people, it's about 1.2 guns for every um, United States citizen, then we're going to have to have regulated responsibility um, rules such as red flag laws, and we're going to have to do it very effectively. So I'm, I'm a proponent of red flag laws. So Ryan, there has been threats on your life and, the, uh, and your family as well. How do you respond to those threats? Why, why are people threatening you? Well, this is sadly, when you have radicalized politics like this, anybody who stands up for the right thing in this country is now gonna get threats from the authoritarian right. It doesn't really phase me that much. I, it, this isn't a lot different existence than I lived for the last few years uh, as I detail in the book, trying to do the right thing while still inside the industry. So kind of used to it. But the way that I deal with it is I look at the preponderance of evidence, I guess. Yeah, I've got some ugly comments and some ugly things have been said and threatened. But I, every day I get up and there's, you know, somewhere between a few to a few dozen messages and emails and phone calls and whatever, direct messages on social media um, encouraging us that we're doing the right thing that they're glad somebody is speaking out, that they're happy that responsible gun owners finally have somebody to speak for them. So, you know, and that, and it's honestly, it's probably 50 to one positive to negative. It's the opposite of what we anticipated. So I guess I take, I take a lot of solace in what the scales look like there. Okay. So you claim that there are many people who want to be responsible, a responsible part of resolving the gun violence issue. So how do these people become a solution to the violence we see formatted around guns? Well, it's much like our political situation. It's a very difficult proposition. Sounds like an easy thing, right? Just uh, let's be responsible so we can fix this problem. I mean, how hard could that be? But the truth is it's going to be very difficult, much like fixing our political situation. It's going to mean that, that folks who are normally quiet, reserved, don't like a lot of trouble, don't want to be at these meetings where there's yelling back and forth. Don't, we're going to have to figure out a way for the good, reasonable, decent folks to stand up and take the mic back from what, for all intents and purposes, are a bunch of bullies. Same exact thing is going on in our politics, where a loud group of 10 or 15 or 20 percent have taken the mic and they've become the bullies in the room. And uh, gun owners are going to have to decide whether they care about themselves. Responsible gun owners are going to have to care about decide whether they care about their families and their country and being responsible enough to take back the mic. And I, I, I think it is happening and it's growing and it's um, swelling into a place where this will happen more and more. But, you know, time is of the essence here. So you've written a book to tell your story. The title is Gunfight, My Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America. 
tell us about your book. Well, the book is my story of my of the history of me in the firearms industry, basically a 25-year history. And it just so happens that my life and my history correspond almost exactly with the time frame that the firearms industry and the kind of gun rights movement changed the politics and, and existence of our country. And so it's an intertwining of my personal story and that of my family with the history of, of guns and the gun rights movement and gun sales in our nation. And it's a, both a narrow lens on me and the characters in and around my life and a wider lens on the country uh, as it changed from what we were in the mid nineties to what we are today. So some say Hollywood and the concept of quote cowboy have a role to play in the popularity of weapons. What do you see the role of Hollywood and the violence shown in movies, television, and video games in terms of promoting a gun culture in this country? In a country of 370 million people with lots of <laughs> lots of conflicting inputs, there are complex causes, right? And I'm sure our entertainment industry, including Hollywood, is one of those components. I think there is something uniquely American about about guns and the power that they convey. I knew that as a kid, whenever I would grab my little 22 rifle, like all of a sudden I was kind of the one in charge and, and I could be a sheriff or I could be an outlaw or I could be a hunter or I could be like the gun allowed, it was sort of a conduit for what you hoped or what you wished was true. And I think Hollywood does a really good job of tapping into the power that guns convey to individuals because it's an outsized power. So is there is inter, is the entertainment industry complicit to some degree in the way that we glorify guns? Yeah, I, I think so. But every country has entertainment. Japan has really violent video games and some really violent movies. And Japan doesn't have this gun problem. Um, and I could go on down the list with various examples that are not dissimilar from us in Japan. And so, we can look at all the disparate causes of our situation. I'm not here to say that all of them don't play a role, but we would be really foolish to ignore the single unique aspect of our existence, which is 410 million guns and in a culture glorifying sort of political radicalization and, and violence. So I guess my point here is, is that there are disparate, there are disparate causes, but be pretty dumb to ignore the largest cause staring us in the face. Yeah, in your book, you have a chapter titled Couch Commando. Who are these commandos? And uh, uh, you say they're manipulating in some way. How are they manipulating? Well, Couch Commando is a term that um, industry executives use to describe what are essentially people who did not serve in the military, but that either wish they would served or glorify the idea of special forces or play video games, play first-person sort of shooter video games where they pretend to be parts of the military or special forces, special operators, these sorts of things. And, you know, a couch commando, air quotes there, gone off the rails would be these, these kids who commit these horrific shootings in places like Buffalo where the guy went and bought all this tactical gear, these bulletproof vests and all the sort of tactical paraphernalia that he had. And then he went out and he acted out he acted out a tactical operation on African-Americans in a Buffalo grocery store, and he acted that out, and he, he um, basically carried out that military mission 
after having studied and learned how to do this sort of thing on YouTube from other people who are into this sort of glorifying these tactical operations. So that's it's a long answer, but basically people who who act like or glorify the idea of being special operators. Okay, we've seen a, a lot of coverage recently in the media about war in Afghanistan and, and Ukraine. Its uh, effects on citizens is termed, one of the terms is indirect casualties, these wars by, uh, this was done by a recent guest of ours, Dr. Barry Levy, uh, physician and epidemiologist at Tufts University. What role do you think guns have in, in what we see today as, as war weapons and equip, equipment and in, and in terms of indirect casualties? Well, look, we, we, as my dad would tell me when he handed me a gun when I was a small kid, you know, be careful, this thing can take a life in an instant. And we shouldn't forget that that's what a gun is meant to do. It, it, it's very specifically meant to take a life in an instant. And some of them are meant to take many lives at a very fast rate. That's what an AR-15 is built to do. It's much like a it's very much like a like a Formula One race car. In some ways, it's like other cars. It's got four wheels and a steering wheel and an engine and everything else. But unlike other cars, it's it can corner very fast and accelerate very fast and you know um, get from A to B um, very efficiently. And so that's kind of what an AR-15 is. It's like that. I don't think we should be surprised that that guns that are meant to be that efficient um, play a role in these sorts of things. Ryan, you say maybe America needs an opposite of the NRA, an organization that is responsible for gun owners uh, ownership, uh, an organization that has gun owners who uh, are responsible for ownership. What do, what do you mean by an organization and what might it look like? Well, I'm, I'm currently working with Giffords to form a, a responsible gun owners organization. And I think I think it's really important. You know, we talked earlier about the way in which a small slice of gun owners have sort of bullied out responsible people just because they're louder and have taken the mic. And so I think there needs to be an organization or organizations, plural, whatever, that stand up and give responsible people the microphone back. And because the NRA and groups like it, they essentially succeed because they tell politicians in the American public that all gun owners think the same and they're all this radical and they all want to object to all regulation all the time. And that's just simply untrue. It's just a flat out falsehood. And we have to disavow people of that of that belief because it leads to really bad political outcomes if if policymakers and staffers and and folks like that believe that sort of falsehood. So I'm very hopeful that the effort that Giffords is um, undertaking now and any others that allow responsible gun owners to, to um, stand up and be represented. I'm very hopeful that it's successful. Well, there are obviously other chapters in your book. Would you like to discuss uh, any others at this point? Well, you know, the, the story of my life is in there. You hit on, you know, one of my favorite, most important, I think, is that Couch Commando chapter. There's also a couple chapters on the way in which authoritarianism spreads in an entity how free thought was squashed. Um, one of them is called the one of the chapters is called Zumbomania, and in that chapter, a, a veteran of the firearms industry, really a celebrity named Jim Zumbo, was persecuted, and he had written 23 books, and he signed autographs, and he was really a hero for many. And he dared to to write a blog in 2007 where he criticized the proliferation of AR-15s, and he lost everything in a matter of days. His 
Cabela's sponsorship for his TV show was gone. Um, he, he was an editor at Outdoor Life. He was fired from that. It was completely gone. And so the message there was you had to be fully on board and support AR-15 proliferation and this new sort of tactical culture all the way, all the time, or you were out. And I think of people in other entities in our country that experience that sort of, you know, squashing of free thought. I think of people in evangelical churches and entities like that across our country where any sort of questioning is driven from the entity and no no entity worth existing can't question or criticize itself. So I guess my, my message in, in, from that chapter is if, if, if you feel like you're in, in, in some sort of entity where it's so insecure that it can't allow any internal criticism, like that should be a warning flag, a siren, a, I don't care, like all the things. It's something very unhealthy is going on there. I live that firsthand. Okay, what was the person's name you were, you were mentioning? His name was Jim Zumbo. Um, and the name of the chapter is Zumbomania, Z-U-M-B-O. Mm -hmm. There's another person that uh, you said was important in your life. That's uh, Daryl Stewart. Uh, yeah, so Daryl was Daryl was one of my sales guys, and he he's in he's in one of those crazy chapters where um, I detail the kind of crazy stuff that happened. But Daryl was just a you know he's just a guy wanting to get by at life, and he ended up being a gun salesman because he loved guns. But you know. He was involved in a workplace shooting. He, <laughs> you know, he, he was really quite the character, and and I still know him today. And for me, he's very illustrative of the way that average everyday people can have problems, and how guns being wrapped into those problems just really isn't a very healthy situation. In fact, it can be exceedingly unhealthy. So yeah, he was just he was illustrative of all that. Uh, Ryan, as we come to the, uh, the uh, close in our conversation. I want to say we really appreciate you joining us. But, uh, would you have any last thoughts that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I um, appreciate the work you guys are doing and um, the thoughtful way you've uh, approached us today. I guess I would say to everybody, this is an issue that you should care about, even if you think, even if you know, guns, gun violence, whatever, isn't like your preeminent thing. I would encourage you to be involved with this issue strictly because I don't think all the other stuff that you care about is going to improve a lot until we figure out a way to fix and improve this gun thing again because the politics of guns and the nra now are wrapped into and color everything else that you care about and so um i, I really believe that as as we figure out a way to improve this issue we will make all of our issues in our country much better and, and it won't happen until it won't happen until we figure out a way to do it. So I think it's important. And, and um, thank you both for uh, having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ryan. Our yeah. conversation today has been with Ryan Bussey, author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. We appreciate you joining us today as we explore with our listeners more solutions to violence. Thank you once again for sharing your time and experience with our listeners here on Forward Radio. You can listen to Solutions to Violence live stream by visiting us at forwardradio.org and choosing Listen Live Now. We air Solutions to Violence on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. The Solutions to Violence program that features Ryan Bussey will air again January 17th and 18th. This program featuring Ryan Bussey will be placed in our archives. To listen via our archives, visit us at forwardradio.org, choose Program Archives, and scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program it features Ryan Bussey. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with Ryan Bussey, you can reach us with the following email, 
solutionsofviolence18.gmail.com. I'm Jim Johnson, here with Jamie McMillan, our technical engineers, Carolyn Brooks Johnson, wishing you and yours wellness, safety, and peace in these challenging COVID pandemic times. Until next time, please keep peace in your own way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.